The integrity of the markets is really important, but we all have responsibilities for that. And so I think that if the markets can keep their integrity, that we'll all all do well. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to Days of Futures Past on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is John Lothian, Executive Chairman at John Lothian & Company and founder and publisher of John Lothian News. We'll be discussing the people and times that created the modern futures exchange in Chicago. Hello, John. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. The modern history of commodity futures exchanges is often written in terms of impersonal forces of economics and history, but to you, it's very much a story of people and places. You've chronicled the people and development of the modern futures exchange in Chicago, so I'm really happy to get you here today to share your perspective and some of your stories with us. And my first question to you would be, when and with whom does the story of the modern commodities futures markets begin for you? Well, actually, I went to work for a gentleman by the name of Tom Cashman when I was 17 years old. But it really begins with him and his family, because during World War II, the markets had price controls on them. And the only market that didn't have a price control on it was lard. And the Board of Trade was trying to reestablish its narrative and its story. And because the prices you know, weren't moving and there wasn't volatility, the price of memberships had come down. And so it allowed people to come in and buy memberships that were not as rich as before the war or whatever. And that was many immigrants. And that included Tom Cashman's family. And there's a great story about how his grandparents had had a house on the west side of Chicago that the city of Chicago wanted for the Eisenhower Expressway. And the city bought it and they gave the family a check. And there was, I think, eight family members sitting around the table. The parents had passed away. And, and so the kids were trying to decide what to do with the money. And would they all give you know a little bit to each family member or would they give the money to the oldest brother george who had been a runner at the board of trade and allow him to become a member of the exchange which is what they did and slowly he brought several of his relatives into the exchange and at one time, there were 14 different cashmans and 14 different trading pits at the Board of Trade. And so, you know, it's a great family story about how all these different immigrant families, risk takers, people that came into the markets, you know, were able to participate in them. And the story really began, as you said, in that relatively quiet period 
following price controls and low volatility after the Second World War. But if we kind of move forward to the 1970s, that was a period that was truly transformative for the futures markets. You know, looking back at the beginning of the decade, futures were for physically deliverable commodities exclusively, I believe. And by the 1980s, futures were trading on currencies, US treasuries, euro dollars, and stock indices. There were certainly external forces at work. Volatility came roaring back into the markets with the dismantling of the Bretton Woods currency system. Nixon moved the US off the gold standard. There was the formation of OPEC and the oil shocks, a US embargo on selling wheat to Russia, and inflation. So lots of risk needing to be managed. I'd love you to walk us through some of the people and events that shaped that transformative decade. You know, maybe we can start off with the creation of currency and bond futures. So <laughs> before Bretton Woods broke up, there was actually a guy in New York that approached the New York Produce Exchange. His name was Murray Borowitz. And the New York Produce Exchange had fallen on hard times because of a scandal, this great salad oil scandal of the 1960s, okay? And because of that, they were looking for new things to trade. And so Murray suggested currency futures. And so they listed currency futures and they made him the executive chairman of the exchange and they renamed the exchange the International Commercial Exchange. So it was the first ICE before Intercontinental Exchange. And uh, you can actually go on the CFTC website and see that they were the first you know, financial futures exchange. However, when they went to deliver the Japanese yen futures for the first time, the Japanese central bank would not let the currencies out of the country. And because of that, the contract failed and ultimately the exchange failed and it got rolled into the New York Mercantile Exchange, which is part of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange of the CME Group today and part of their history. Now, Leo Malamed had seen that you know, there was an opportunity to trade these futures, these currencies, and so he created the international monetary market in Chicago as a separate exchange. And he sold memberships to everybody that he could find. And it became a successful thing. And it, then they rolled that back into the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And so it became a division of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. That was just one of several divisions that they had. When they later developed the stock index features, they created the IOM, the Index and Option Market Division, which was another one. But the currencies, you know, was, was Leo's baby. And he uh, stood there and asked people to go over and trade them for five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day, you know, go make a trade. And they would until they finally, you know, caught fire and became a, a big success. Now, on the bond futures, the first contract was actually the Ginny May futures. And so the Ginny Mays were, were started and they failed about five different times. There were about five different versions of the Ginny May contracts before they finally gave up at the Board of Trade. But that was the first interest rate contract both the Board of Trade and the CME would list T-bill futures, although it was the CME that finally succeeded in having a T-bill futures contract. 
the Board of Trade then developed a T-bond futures contract in 1977, and that became the most traded futures contract of the 20th century, more than any other futures contract. And it was just a thing to behold. So when that first started, they traded the bonds and the Ginnie Mays in what was called the South Room of the Chicago Board of Trade. And then it became so big that they built a new trading room for the grains in 1981, and they moved the bonds into the 1929 trading floor of the Board of Trade. And uh, they put the bonds in the old soybean pit, and uh, it was just packed to the (laughs) – just packed. It was something to behold in, in there. And that room was kind of interesting because back in the day when it was trading grains, they had these beautiful windows that looked down LaSalle Street, you know, so that you could see out the windows and see whether it was raining or not. But when uh, it was the financial room, they painted them black. So it was kind of a dark and dingy room in there and and all. So it was uh, a little bit different. But uh, they subsequently developed 10-year notes, five-year notes, two-year notes at the Board of Trade and developed the whole curve there. And it became um, a very, very active you know, interest rate complex for the Board of Trade. And you know what we've been talking about so far are mainly futures contracts. And at the start of the 1970s, there were really only futures. At the end of the decade, we talked in terms of derivatives and of futures and options. And I was hoping you could walk us through how did the options markets develop in Chicago? Well, the equity options markets started because in the late 60s, the guys at the Board of Trade were kind of bored because the markets weren't moving around very much. And so they uh, were looking for something to trade. And a guy by the name of Eddie O'Connor came up with the idea of trading equity options as a listed contract. At the time, equity options were only traded over the counter out of New York. And so the Board of Trade started a committee, and it was actually run by a guy by the name of Bill Mallers Sr., who was a former employer of mine. And so they developed the idea for what became the Chicago Board Options Exchange. And they set it up as a separate entity because they did not want the Board of Trade to be regulated by the SEC. That was a recurring theme in Chicago that the exchanges did not want to be regulated by the SEC. The Board of Trade actually had a securities license many, many years before where they could have traded stocks but they didn't do anything with it. But anyway, they set up the SIBO as a, as a separate entity. You know, at one point, the old time grain firms kind of were complaining like, hey, we're never going to trade, you know, on this thing. We need to, you know, really stop the bleeding. And, and so that they kind of forced them to stand on their own two feet. And, you know, they sold a lot of memberships to fund themselves and, and they, they got going. There was a lot of pushback from the SEC about it, but they they worked their way through it, and uh, and they finally launched. It was 50 years ago that they launched, April 26, 1973. 
and they traded 911 contracts on the first day. And interestingly, it was the SEC only allowed them to trade calls because puts were not needed. It wasn't until about you know several years later that they were able to push through to be able to get puts, which really made the made the product more more fully functional. But it wasn't until the the mid 1980s that options were allowed to trade in the futures markets. They had been outlawed in the in the futures markets. And I and I can't remember exactly what was that freed them up, but all of a sudden we had options on soybeans and corn and and wheat and and then the treasury bonds and and over at the mercantile exchange they they hired a guy by the name of Bill Brodsky from the Amex to come in. He eventually became the CEO of the exchange, and when. When he joined the exchange, the CME didn't have options on their futures contracts. And when he left the exchange to become the the CEO of the CBOE, they had options contracts on every single contract over at the CME. Well, it's a great story with SIBO, and we're going to have guests from SIBO on later in this series to dive into it more deeply. One thing I wanted to ask you about is there was also interesting support coming in from the the academic community as well. I mean, obviously in 1973, you had the development of the Black-Scholes option pricing model. I believe Richard Sandor played uh, quite a role in the development of the exchanges in the 1970s as well. Can you tell us a little bit about his story? Yeah. So Richard Sandor was a a kid from New York who had um, been out at, at Berkeley as a professor he was recommended for a job at the Chicago Board of Trade as the chief economist. He had done some some work on some banking stuff and and so they they invited him in for a for an interview. Anyway, he he ended up getting the, getting the job. His wife tells a great story about how he got interviewed at the Union League Club, and he and she walked into the Union League Club, and she was told that she couldn't walk in through the front door because she was a woman, and she said, the heck with that, and walked right through the front door. And so he was sure that he was never going to get that job, but sure enough, um, he did. And so um, so that was the first time that the Board of Trade had a, um, a chief economist, and, and so he worked to kind of re- work some of the agricultural contracts that they had. And then he worked on the the Ginny May contract. He got a bunch of data from a, a bank out in, in California and looked at their portfolio and and uh, you know kind of worked on on that and and so he he worked on that and then um and then he and his team that he developed at the Board of Trade developed the uh, the thirty year bond contract there as well. So it wasn't just him, but it was uh, a team of people that he that he built there at the at the Board of Trade that developed these contracts, and um, you know really kind of changed the the nature of it. But one of the one of the big things that that changed was all of a sudden you had financial futures contracts. And the futures industry had always been regulated by the agriculture department. 
And so that wasn't going to work in Washington. And so the exchanges went to Washington to say, hey, we need a new structure for this. And also at the same time, the big banks, um, the big brokerage houses, the wire houses went to Washington and said, hey, we need a new structure for the brokerage industry. Because during the 1970s, when you had the big run-up in, in wheat prices and soybean prices and all that, a lot of these wirehouses, which had you know two men operations out in the middle of nowhere, there'd been some customer abuses. And it was the wirehouses that got sued, the ones with the deep pockets. And so they wanted to prevent that from happening again. And so you had the creation of the Commodity Exchange Act which created the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. And with that, then you had the Senate Banking Committee that had oversight over the CFTC as well as the Agriculture Committee. And so you had this kind of dual regulation oversight there. But because of that, you know, you had these new contracts that uh, were allowed to trade and uh, be approved by the CFTC. That also was the creation of the futures commission merchant model, where you have different types of what are called FCMs, and then the introducing broker model, where you have independent IBs and and guaranteed IBs. And that actually was what cost me uh, my first job, (laughs) was when that all happened, because a lot of the brokerage firms fired all their branch offices. And when they did that, they pulled a lot of news machines out. And I was working for a news organization at the time. And so they let some reporters go and I was one of them. And so that uh, always kind of stuck with me as to as an important thing to pay attention to the, the big macro view of what was going on. But that regulatory change allowed a lot of innovation to occur within the industry. Not only did the did the industry get the creation of the CFTC to, to look over it, but it also then allowed for the creation of the National Futures Association, which was a self-regulatory organization. And this was a little bit different than the uh, security side setup. And so the NFA is a body that is got a bunch of people from the industry, from the exchanges and the brokerage firms that kind of, you know, regulate the, the industry, hires a bunch of professionals and that do all the audits and, you know, look out for abuses and, and fine. But it's it's the people that they they look after the people that are registered, you know, and so they can only find and deal with those people, whereas the CFTC has the rest of the world. They're looking out for the bad guys, you know, in the, in the rest of the world. And in the CFTC has always been kind of this underfunded agency in, in Washington. And so it's it's been a hard trek for them in, in a lot of ways. But that innovation led to a lot of new contracts and new exchanges and, and all through the years. Yeah, and the the innovation on the regulatory side, I wanted to delve into that a little bit more deeply with you as well, because not only were we adding options markets, but the the nature of futures contracts changed as well with more and more financial futures, the growth in that area. So in addition to physically settled contracts, 
Now there were cash settled or financially settled contracts and futures contracts on indices, which had to have been a really new idea at the time. These developments enabled the new futures markets in euro dollars and equity index futures like S&P 500 futures, things that are very commonplace today. I was curious, how did, how did these innovations come about of moving into cash settled contracts, moving into futures on indices? Well, back in the early 1980s, there was a move to launch stock index futures. The Board of Trade, which at the time was the largest futures exchange, not only in the US, but in the world. So just to keep a perspective on this, when I entered the industry back in the 70s, the Board of Trade was the largest exchange in the world. Not only were they more than 50% of the world's futures volume, but their volume went up every year, right? And so they wanted to list the Dow Jones Index as a futures contract. And they didn't want to pay for it. They just thought that it was public information and they could go ahead and do that. Well, the Dow Jones people uh, had other thoughts on that. And so they sued the Board of Trade. The CME wanted to also list the Dow Jones, but they were smart enough to realize that not to get in the middle of a pissing match. And so they looked for other things and it was suggested to them to talk to the people over at Standard & Poor's. And they're, at the time, kind of little-known S&P 500 contract. And so they did, and they signed an agreement for the S&P 500. The people in Kansas City, at the Kansas City Board of Trade, they did a deal with the, the Value Line people for a contract, the Value Line. And uh, the New York Stock Exchange wanted to get into the business. They created their own futures exchange, which was at the time thought to be a potential real competitor with the Board of Trade. They were going to list treasuries and they were going to do some other things, but they created the New York Composite Index and some other some other indices, the, the, the New York Financial Exchange Index or something like that, the Knife. And they eventually sold that to what became the New York Board of Trade. But anyway, the issue for the regulators was how to be able to create these contracts. And when the CME applied for it, they were talking to the CFTC, which was led by a guy by the name of uh, Johnson at the time. And the SEC was led by a guy by the name of John Shad at the time. And they were having discussions. And part of it was who had the regulatory oversight over stock index futures, because the SEC said, hey, these are stocks, these are ours. And so they came up with an agreement that said, if it's a narrow-based indice, it belongs to the SEC. And if it's a broad-based indice, like the S&P 500, or anything more, you know, with more than, say, 15 stocks in it, then that is a CFTC product, a broad-based indice. And, uh, okay, but part of that deal was that they also outlawed single-stock futures because they couldn't agree on, on that one, so they just outlawed them. And then... John Shad came back to the CFTC and he said, hey, my guys tell me that it's too difficult to settle these contracts physically. 
So they'll have to be cash settled. And cash settlement had been kind of outlawed since about the 1920s or 30s. There was a famous court case where a gambler had taken a huge position at the Board of Trade and lost and left a huge debit and had been sued. And he said, hey, I don't have to pay these, pay this because it's gambling. It's gambling debts. And so I don't have to pay this. And the court found that any contract that includes the possibility of delivery is a futures contract, which is legitimate. And if it's just cash settled, then it's gambling. And so that was the onus that was on on these cash settlement contracts for, for all these years. And so now the the SEC giving its blessing for cash settlement allowed this to happen. And so he went to Johnson and and Johnson went to the CME and said, Hey, you guys, you gotta um, we're gonna let you do this, but you gotta do it with cash settlement. But that actually caused the CME to have to reapply for their S&P 500, which meant that the value line was the first in line because I think they had applied for cash settlement. And so the, the first contract that was approved was actually the Kansas City value line and then the S&P 500 and, and then the other, other contracts. Meanwhile, the Board of Trade, after the CME was having some success with this contract, finally figured out that they were a bunch of idiots and even though they continued on with their lawsuit at, against Dow Jones and they finally lost it, they created um, a contract called the Major Market Index, which essentially was the Dow Jones Industrial 30 um, with about three different contracts in it. And so it had about a 97% correlation to the Dow Jones. And uh, they played around with that for a few years before they finally got the right sizing for it and, and all that kind of stuff. But it was never a never a major, major player, except during the 87 stock market crash when it was the only market that was really open for trading. And it was uh, Blair Hull that went into the market and started to make a market and bid for the market and turn the market around. And that was in the in the blue chip contract. But the cash settlement got approved there, which then allowed the creation of the Eurodollar contract, which was another contract that the CME came up with. So Eurodollars are deposits of U.S. dollars at European banks. And so if you think about it, what was happening was we were paying a lot of money to Middle Eastern countries for for oil. And they were taking the money and they were sticking it into European banks and they were dollar deposits because that's how they got paid for the crude oil. And then the banks were paying them an interest rate on that. And so people needed to hedge this this rate. And so the CME created a short term interest rate and it was kind of like a T-bill rate, except that it didn't have the full faith and guarantee of the U.S. government backing. It had the, the backing of the bank. So then it became kind of a, a credit risk trade. 
So there was a trade called the TED spread, where you bought the T-bills and you sold the euro dollars because you were afraid of risk in the marketplace. And so and they, people still trade the, the TED spread, but they traded the two years versus the euro dollars or something like that, you know, today kind of thing. But uh, the TED spread was a hugely popular trade back back in the day when the T-bills were, were still trading before they kind of just dried up. But yeah, so the cash settlement allowed the creation of euro dollars, which became one of the most popular contracts. It became the most liquid one in terms of the largest open interest after 2000 and and really put the CME on the map as a major player and in, in, as a futures you know exchange. Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing taking a, a step back, how much innovation came out of one place in one decade in the city of Chicago. And I wanted to ask you, because I'm curious about an important development that was more in the 1980s that didn't happen in Chicago, the creation of the modern energy futures markets. The energy markets developed largely outside Chicago. NYMEX, the New York Mercantile Exchange, now owned by the CME Group, obviously in New York, and the International Petroleum Exchange, now owned by the International Continental Exchange in London. And I'm curious, why do you think the energy markets didn't develop in Chicago? Well, actually, there was a contract at the Board of Trade that was listed for crude oil futures. I want to say the CME may have listed a contract as well, but each one of them had to kind of pick a delivery spot for where they wanted the, the delivery to be. And I think the Board of Trades contract delivered it to like New York Harbor or something like that. And the, the NYMEX contract delivered it to some remote spot in the middle of Oklahoma or something like that. And that was where, you know, the industry wanted it to be, you know, so that was the the contract that worked for the industry, for the cash market. And so that was the one that survived. So sometimes you, you know, you get your research right and it works. And sometimes you do your research and you get it wrong. And that was one of those cases. And so the Board of Trade didn't win that one. And the guys at NYMEX were desperate for something to trade because they, you know, they had the potato contract or something like that, that, you know, had fizzled out. And I don't know if they had platinum yet, but they were, they were desperate for something to trade. And so they, they got it right. Well, I also wanted to, you know, shifting gears, discuss with you the role of technology in the development of the exchanges and some of the innovations we've seen. How did computers and information technology find its way into those trading pits and eventually replace them? Well, when the exchanges first started, they used blackboards to report prices and then they got then they got electronic boards and that was a, that was a big uh, a big change. And uh, when I came into the industry I was working for a company called Commodity News Service, and and they used to put out prices and and news on a on a thermal printer, and then they had a a little dumb terminal that 
you know, had prices. And there used to be televisions that the Board of Trade had that was a kind of in-house system. And you would go down to the bar, the sign of the trader at the at the Board of Trade, and there would be some of these terminals that would be right in the in the bar where guys had them put so that they could sit at the bar and trade. So that was the earliest use of technology. But um, in the late 1980s, we had a drought market in 1988, and the markets were just flying. And um, there was a there was a guy that um, had been hired by R.J. O'Brien. He'd been at the Chicago Sun Times, but he was brought over to be their the CFO of R.J. O'Brien, a longtime friend of of Johnny O'Brien, who was the CEO. And there was a day after Memorial Day where it was just crazy and markets were limit up. It was all hands on deck. So he actually went down to the trading floor. It was his only day ever working on the trading floor. And he went down there and he was appalled because of, you know, the antiquated system. And he's like, how are we going to grow this business when there's no room for more brokers? There's no room for more runners. There's no room for more phone clerks. And so he actually said, we need to bring some electronics into this. And he actually had been involved in an early effort over at the Sun-Times to build something that was a precursor of the internet. And so he started with some technology to call back fills, to route some orders down to the trading floor. And that forced the CME and the Board of Trade to start an order routing technology initiative called TOPS. Uh, TOPS stood for Trade Order Processing System. And both of them started a, a project and then they decided to combine the efforts and, and work on one together. And they, which they did, and they were partners in this. And what it did was allow you to type an order into a dumb terminal that would then send an order down to a trading floor to a, a dot matrix printer where an order would print up and then the order would be run into the trading pit. And then later, the exchanges built terminals at the CME, they had the Cubs terminal. Cargo Universal Broker System, and at this uh, Board of Trade, they had the electronic clerk. And the, in that case, the orders transmitted directly to those systems were right at the broker and the or the broker's assistant where, where the orders would be given to the broker and executed and then and then type the the fills would be typed in and sent right back. And so those were the, the, the first efforts to electronify the market. And then um, they, they also had some other systems that they developed. There was a system called Comet, which they had at the booths, which would allow people to basically flash in orders directly into the electronic clerk very quickly. But uh, the Board of Trade and the CME, the the big markets, the financial markets, they use hand signals for a lot of the lot of the stuff. And so, you know, you'd see clerks on the outside of these pits receiving the stuff and flashing prices back and fills back and, and all this kind of stuff. But then you'd see people on on headsets. You know, and all of a sudden you had clerks and brokers on headsets and and now you had something completely different going on. 
And ultimately, all of these things that they did to enhance the trading floor were what I called a path to electronic trading. And so I created a video series called The Path to Electronic Trading, where I interview a lot of different people about all the different things that we have done and all the different people that have contributed to the movement from open outcry trading to electronic trading and and electronic trading and beyond all the way up to and and including crypto. But yeah, the electronic trading eventually became a reality. The first efforts were with that were the CME. They announced a deal with Reuters for what they called the, the Globex Alliance. And what they wanted to do was sign up all these different exchanges to trade on one system. And they included um, in that the Board of Trade, but the Board of Trade had their own system that they were developing that was called Aurora. And Aurora was really innovative. It was actually an Apple-based system that had little icons in it that represented the brokers and traders and had their best price and, and quantity on it. And so you could actually click on a trader and accept their offer or bid and match up the trades and everything. The problem with that system was that the, the data from that was so much that the systems at the time wouldn't wouldn't facilitate it, uh, the network systems. And so um, ultimately they decided not to deploy that system. And then they dragged their feet on the Globex system so much. And part of it was that Globex didn't do some things that the Board of Trade needed. The Globex system traded in decimals. The Board of Trade uh, had contracts that traded in fractions. And so that didn't work. And so the Board of Trade developed their own system, which was a a system that was a local area network. And so it was just in the Board of Trade building and a few other buildings. And so people had dumb terminals and and could trade through that. So if if you were in New York and you wanted to trade electronically, you had to call somebody in Chicago and have them enter an order for you and all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't like the Reuters system. But the Reuters system was pretty slow. And eventually the CME did a deal with Matif in Paris for their system. And they traded their back office clearing 21 software for the match engine and that Matif had. And so they turned that into Globex 2 and built that out. And that became what they use today, largely, or a version of that. I wanted to ask you, John, Along with the movement to electronic trading and eventually the closing of uh, the trading pits, what do you see looking back as the big developments of recent decades? I mean, electronic trading, you know, not only did it kill the trading pits, but it opened up the markets for a lot of different people to participate in them. So it used to be that the, the trading firms or groups or whatever would hire big guys like me. You know, they played football or basketball or whatever type A personalities. Now, all of a sudden, you have firms that are hiring data scientists, physicists, computer scientists, nerds, essentially. And so um, there's a lot of different people that are getting into the trading world than we had before. And so the expansion of that. But the the biggest thing to me is 
the expansion globally of the markets. You know, as I mentioned, the Board of Trade was more than 50% of the world's futures volume when when I got into the industry and its volume went up every year. But the other side of that statistic was that their percentage of futures volume went down every year. And ultimately, the board of trade portion of the CME group volume is a just a small part of, of the world futures volume. And so when you look at the growth of futures trading globally, that is the big thing. The volumes coming out of Asia are just tremendous these days. The ability to manage risk all over the world with contracts that are specifically designed for those types of risk. Back in the 1970s, when we had inflation running rampant, people were using soybeans uh, in order to manage their inflation risk. They were trading pork bellies or gold to manage their risk. Now they have you know, not no longer euro dollars, but SOFR contracts to be able to do that, or treasury complex futures to be able to do that, or Boond and and all the contracts at Eurox to be able to do that. All the different exchanges around the world offering interest rate, stock index futures, and individual commodity contracts. So that to me is the is the big story is the the worldwide expansion of it and the the number of people that globally that have been brought into the markets. You know, you can look at algorithmic trading as a as a big trend, you can look at co-location as a big trend where, you know, people have their computers right next to the exchange as opposed to, you know, sitting right next to them and all that. Those certainly are big things. But, you know, there's there's more opportunity in the markets today than there than there ever was in, in some ways because they're accessible, they're liquid, and you know, anybody can participate. And that wasn't always true. I used to tell people not to trade New York markets because you couldn't get a fill out of there. And when you got a fill, it wasn't going to be a very good one and at all. And today you can get an instantaneous fill in a market. And so you know exactly where you are. You can cancel your order as many times as you want and you know do things that back in the day would drive brokers crazy, drive people crazy. But today you can you can do lots of things that to trade any way that you want. And it's in it gives you a lot of freedom. So I, I I think the expansion of the markets globally and the opportunities that that presents is, is the biggest thing. Yep. And as we wrap things up, I was hoping you could help us put all this together and put it into perspective of the future markets today versus yesterday. I think you've given us a great sense of the biggest differences with the increasing globalization, the increasing span of assets being traded, the increase in opportunity relative to what it was decades ago. I'm curious though for you, what's always remained and what needs to remain central for these markets to be viable? Well, the markets uh, need to be fair. They need to have integrity. And that's at the exchange level, that's at the regulatory level, that's with the brokerage firms, the way that they deal with customers. And, you know, we're we're pretty lucky today. We've got some really good regulators in the NFA and the and the CFTC. 
and uh, the exchanges do a, a good job of, of regulating their markets. There are always going to be people that try to abuse the markets. That's never going to stop. You know, that's, that's just part of life. So you always have to be on the lookout for it. But markets, one of the things about markets is that they're supposed to be self-regulatory. So when you see something wrong, you should report it. That's the way it was in the in the trading pit. When you saw something wrong, you dealt with it. Whether you dealt with it personally by not trading with a person anymore, or you dealt with it by going to the pit committee or the board of directors or, or whatever, but you dealt with it. And so the integrity of the markets is really important, but we all have responsibilities for that. And so I think that if the markets can, can keep their integrity, that we'll all, all do well. But, you know, the markets are really, really important to us. They play a, an important role for price discovery, for price discovery of key elements. When you think about the things that they help us, they help us with interest rates. They help us with energy. They help us with food. They help us with clothing. They help us with shelter, right? And so they've helped us close the gap and reduce the the friction on all of those markets. So if you look back at, for example, the interest rate market, when the 30-year bond market began to trade, it was essentially about $1,000, a full point between the bids and offers of the cash market. When the treasury bond futures started trading, it was a 30-second. So that $1,000 was narrowed down to $31.25, okay? Many of these markets have been narrowed down even more. And if you look at even some of the proposals with in front of the SEC these days, they're talking about narrowing some of the prices to less than a penny to be able to trade some of these things. So, you know, lots of bids offers have been and narrowed and the markets are very efficient and that helps all of us. Well, and I really want to thank you, John, for sharing your unique perspective on the history of these markets, particularly in Chicago with us. And maybe if I can push my luck, I'll ask you one more question before we go. And that is, given your understanding of history and your experience, are there ways in which you see these markets needing to change for the future? Well, the markets are always changing for the future. Uh, they are doing it right before our eyes. And so there's new markets being developed, like the crypto markets, like the DeFi markets, like the you know, all of all of those kinds of things, the tokenization of 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 things. And so there's always innovation going on. There's constant movement, new exchanges being started, new contracts being started, new competition, new types of algorithms for exchange matching, all kinds of, of different ways of that people are trying to compete in these markets because of the great opportunity and the great liquidity for it. The you know the US equity options markets are going from you know 16 exchanges up to 20 exchanges here in the in the near term 
because, you know, volume has exploded in the last couple of years from 17 million contracts a day up to 40 million contracts a day. And some of that is through innovation of the way that the exchanges are competing. And some of that is just, hey, I want in on this and we're going to, we need the capacity. So I see that. One of the concerns that I do have is always concentration. We do have some major players in the market where there is some concentration and you wonder whether there's the ability for some startups to be able to to compete. But there are places for them to compete and ways for them to be able to do that. And they're they're always finding a way to, to be able to do that. So I'm I'm optimistic about competition. I'm optimistic about innovation. And, you know, it, sometimes uh, innovation can be a little ugly and it takes a little while to get it right. But ultimately, I think we end up in a better place. And so I'm I'm a believer in, in the process. But I, I do think that innovation is happening right before our eyes and and you can't uh, you can't stop it. Thanks again to John Lothian, founder and publisher of John Lothian News. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week with our two guests from SIBO, Dave Housen and Josh Schmidt. We'll be discussing the history of and lessons from the Chicago Board Options Exchange as it celebrates its 50th anniversary. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability. ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, ABEX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.